Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 12. I'm just going to read the first three verses, but we are going to work our way down through this text. These first few verses are probably uh, most commonly known to you. This is the beginning of the nation of Israel. Um, this is the beginning of, of uh, a line that's going to bring the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth. It's, this is a fascinating passage of how this all comes together and the people he chooses to do this. You will feel right at home with these folks. Let's look at these first three verses, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country. And from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And make your name great. And so you, will, and so, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the ones who curse you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have a plan that no man can thwart, no matter how faithless or faithful man is, it does not change what you have laid down from the foundations of the world. You are not a God that reacts, Uh, we are the reactionary ones, you are the one that is the rock, the refuge, the one that does not move. And so as we just sing, Lord, in a reminder to cling to Christ, we, we are encouraged by that. You are not like the shifting shadows. You are always truth. You, you're always there. You're, you're right where the Bible has you, Lord. And we can hold on to you and embrace your truth and get through those tough times and have great joy even in difficulty. So we thank you also for the examples that are laid down in the Bible. There are no perfect human beings in the Bible. There is only a perfect God. So we learn from these men and women. As their faith is amazing at times and extremely weak. And they remind us of ourselves. But the one thing we have in common with them is there was a deliverer coming. And they knew it. They knew you were going to redeem them somehow, some way. We have the privilege of being on the other side of the cross looking back at that and being amazed at the cross each and every time that knowing that our redemption took place there, Lord. But thank you for these examples in the Scriptures, Lord. May we learn from them today. May we particularly be amazed at your grace and mercy. We pray this in your name. Amen. It is amazing when you start to study these patriarchs. Um, we're moving into uh, one of Israel's greatest patriarchs is Abraham. Uh, and, and he's not perfect, is he? Uh, and yet, this is the one that he chooses to bring the nation of Israel through. And even more important, he chooses to bring the seed of the Messiah through him. And yet, as we study these characters within the Bible... Uh, we see a lot of ourselves. (laughs) We see a lot of faith that wavers and a God who doesn't. Does that resonate with you? 
Uh, I find great hope in that. Turn to Psalms chapter 42. I just thought of a few Psalms to kind of remind myself that, yes, we waver, but our Lord doesn't. Um, of course, Pastor Jason read a great Psalm there, but let me take you to Psalm 42 and then a neighboring Psalm 46 just to remind you of this great God that plows through our faithlessness in a gracious and kind way, but he's going to do what he set down. And, and we begin to say, I am so glad he does not change because of me. But look, We are the ones that run to him. Verse 1, as a deer pants for the water's brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. You know this, don't you? (laughs) This is us talking here as we trust in God through difficult times. These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. This is that, that work within the soul, that rustling with the Spirit of God at times. For I used to go along, uh, along with the throng and lead them in the possession of the house of God. There's times where we had great spiritual success, the writer is saying here. Spiritual joy going with a voice of joy and thanksgiving and a multitude keeping the festival. And then verse 5, why are you in despair, oh my soul? Have you ever asked yourself that? Well, usually what we, what we don't do is we don't ask ourselves that question, we we try to figure out who's causing us the problems. This is a good, good question. Why is your soul in despair? Christian, has not God died for you? Has he not reserved for you an eternal redemption? Why is my soul in despair? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in the Lord, the psalmist says here. Hope in, hope in God. For I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. What a great reminder. Just flip over to Psalms uh, 46. I think Abraham probably went through much of this. Of course, a lot of these psalms are by King David and Korah and Asaph and others. Um, but these men knew what it was to wrestle with these things. Look at verse 5. Just, well, just one more verse here. God is... Actually... Uh, Verse 1, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. There's times we get in trouble. We're going to see Sarah's reaction to deep, deep trouble her husband got her into today. Uh, And God was that great refuge. Verse 2, therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. We say, was that possible? Anybody been watching Hawaii lately? (laughs) Though its waters roar and foam, we've seen that come spinning around here in the fall. And though the mountains quake as it's swelling pride, there is a river whose stream make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. And so there's comfort in the, in the midst of trials. Um, as I was meeting with a whining family this, this week, um, what a precious group of people. <laughs> That's a hard one. 
That was a hard one. And, and though Dennis ran to the end, I mean, he was, I mean, how many people there got checked out in the week of his death at Publix? How many people? It, yeah, my wife included. Checked out by Dennis and then he checked out. <laughs> the Lord took him home. But yet, to sit with that family this week and watch them grieve and then, then, then to joy and then grieve and then to joy and, and uh, you know, much as Brenton Candace did as well, they cling, they cling to that rock that won't move because he's so faithful. And that's the reminder that we have all the way through scriptures, and we'll see that particularly in this text today. Turn with me back to uh, Genesis chapter 12, and I think you have an outline there, and we can kind of work down. I want to backtrack just a little bit. Um, number one, a godly heritage is a blessing, but God doesn't need it. <laughs> and I want to prove that, because, I mean, we think of Abraham. Abraham, if you talk to Jews to this day, all the way back to Jesus' time, Abraham, he is the patriarch of patriarchs, him and David. In fact, Paul takes Abraham and David in Romans 4 and proves that they came to God the same way we come to God by faith alone. Because he wants to take their patriarchs to prove how you get to God. And, and yet, he has no heritage. He has no heritage at all. Look at verse 11, I mean, chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the records of the generation of Terah. This is Abraham's father. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, Haran, Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. So that's probably somewhere around Babel, which would be Babylon in that, that later times in that area. Um, Abraham and Nahor took wives for themselves. The names of Abram's, Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. And the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah, and then verse 30, Sarah was barren and she had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, and his grandson, and Sarai, and his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Charan. There's a change in the Hebrew right there. It's not the same word as the, as the brother's name. And they settled there. In the days of Terah were 200... And five years, and Terah died in Tehran. Um, when you think about this, there's this very close-knit family. I mean, uh, one of the boys dies. The grandfather takes the, the grandson. Um, and they're very close-knit. There's, there's these three brothers, including Abram. And, and Haran dies, and the family's moving. They're, they're moving to the land of, uh, of Canaan, but they're leaving this Chaldean area, probably the Babylon area. Uh, but this family's completely pagan. Completely pagan. I'm going to prove that to you just in a moment. Look with me to Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. You say, well, how do you know? Don't, don't, you know, you're just guessing, Scott? Uh, how, do you, how do you know that... Abram's father was an absolute pagan. Well, the Bible tells us. Joshua is reviewing the history of Israel and he's giving his farewell address, right? And this is a very important time. The nation has crossed in. They've taken captive these cities. They need to finish the battles. Joshua is 
is giving his final address and he's charging them. Verse 1, then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel in Shechem and called the elders of Israel before their heads and their judges and their officers and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, now listen to this, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Terah was a pagan. He did not follow the true living God. And yet, as you turn back here and we realize what God is going to do with Abraham is he's going to call him out of this. He's going to take them away from this pagan world and call them right out of that and they're going to become followers of God. Uh, to me, I, I know that's a little bit of history and you read chapter 11 there and you go all these names and stuff, but that is so thrilling to me. Because God still does this today. Is there any first generation believers in here? Raise your hand if your parents were not believers. Look at that. God loves to claim people out of pagan societies. He just does that. He awakens children of, of those who weren't followers of him and draws them to himself. And he did that here with Abraham. So I said a godly heritage is a blessing. And I'm thankful my parents had me in church. They claimed to be in the faith. I, I enjoy that. I enjoy having conversation. Um, uh, but God doesn't need that. I've had many, many young people come to me and say, well, you know, I didn't come from a Christian family. I don't know if I can go into the ministry. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, we got countless people in the scriptures that wouldn't be in ministry if they had to come from a Christian family. In fact, sometimes it's a little bit of a blessing. Now, it seems clear in verse 31 that Terah planned to go to the land of Canaan, but he doesn't get there, right? He, he only gets as far as Chahan, and there he dies. Now, there's a little tidbits in here that begin to help you understand that God is in this. Verse 30, notice that barren women in God's promises, our next subthought there. Right in the middle of this Bible, Sarai is, is, we're told that Sarai is not going to have children. She's barren. Now, isn't that interesting? And isn't that like God? In fact, as you remember, and we'll get through this as we work through Genesis, every one of these gals is barren, right? So Abram's married to Sarah, right? He'll change their names here in a few chapters. Isaac's married to Rebekah, and Jacob's married to Rachel, and all of them, their wombs are closed. Because God says, you're not going to do this. <laughs> I'm going to do this. Because that's how he works, he loves to show himself uh, and magnify himself to do things that man can't do. And so this little tidbit, verse 30 of chapter 11, is, oh yeah, by the way, she can't have children. Oh, what about that promise from the garden? How's that going to get fulfilled? And so we find this, that God is going to prove that he doesn't need man to fulfill his promise. He doesn't need their help, and they will try to help. Now, Notice number two, the, the Lord calls and commands Abram. Look at chapter 12 here. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. For us, that was Ormond Beach. <laughs> we kind of felt like that, right? When I read this on, I was thinking, yeah, we left our parents. We <laughs> left the West Coast. We went to a really foreign land called Florida, uh, the South, Bunch of college football weirdos. Um, I understand this just a little bit. 
But you have to realize how family-oriented these people were. Remember, they did not even want to move apart. God had to change their languages to get these people to move apart. And now God is telling the future, uh, the future of Israel here, I want you to leave everything you know and follow me. See, this is what God does. The call to follow the Lord to an unknown land, that's what he does. He calls you out of a pagan land and into his land. That's what he did when he saved you. He doesn't call you and say, well, hey, now you got some fire insurance, just do whatever you want. He has a land for you to live in. And, and that's his world. What he has designed for us to be. He wants us in his family in his place where he has called us to be. And that, this is such a beautiful reminder. And, and here, this call to follow the Lord, he just obeys this. And, and we see this through scriptures a lot. I, we could look at a million examples, but just think of some of these guys. Uh, we've been looking at them in the book of Mark, these fishermen. They're just down there fishing. That's what they know. Their dad did it. Their grandparents did it. That's the family business. This is what we do. And Jesus says, follow me. Okay, we leave it and go. They just do it. They just follow. And you go, well, are you kidding me? And then he comes along to Matthew, as we saw a couple weeks ago, this tax collector, he's, he's living a, a lucrative life, and he's, he's not happy, they're not happy, the Israelites are not happy with him. And he just drops it and follows the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul has it made in the religious society of Israel. He's working his way to the top, he's the, great, he's the greatest persecutor within the bunch. He's well known for his zeal. Jesus knocks him off his horse and he never goes back. This is what God does. He comes and gets you. <laughs> and he says, you're mine now. i got a land for you. You're going to live in it. And you're going to bring about my will. And I think sometimes we have to stop and say, am I a part of that? Or am I just getting by? I remember talking to some older believers, I hope, you know. And I said, well, hey, how are you serving the Lord in your final days? Well, got a TV clicker in there. I'm just waiting for the Lord to return. <laughs> Living the life. Oh, really? He didn't have anything for you to do? Does he have anything for you to leave? Because he often asks people to leave certain things and go cling to him and follow him. You know, we start getting into Lordship Salvation a little bit here. Is he Lord? Does he have the right to say, go? Go. It was, it was interesting to hear how many people, when Gene and I made the move, said, oh, I just never could do that. I just never could do that. And please, we're not trying it anyway. It was hard, and, and we struggled at times to accept what God was doing in our lives. I'm not in any way trying to. But when God says that, I mean, you know he says, I want you here. Can you do that? Can you leave jobs and go back to school? Can you... Can you do those type of things that we're seeing some of our men do, even in seminary? And, and so this is precious to us. This is what the Lord does. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 real quick, because the Bible records this in the New Testament. as a great act of faith by, by Abraham. Look at verse 8, Hebrews chapter 11, verse, verse 8. By faith, 
Don't you love that about this passage? By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, all the way down. You should just notch those out on your Bible so you can see them very quickly. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, this wasn't his idea. <laughs> it wasn't your idea to be saved. It was God's idea. It wasn't your idea to become a member at Riverbend Community Church and play a role in this family here as we serve the Lord together. It was God's idea. See, he calls. This is what he does. By faith, when he was called, not telling God what he was going to do, by when he was called, he obeyed by going out to a place where he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise as in foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob and fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. I want to be where you're at, God, and I'm willing to follow you. And look, not everyone is called to leave Ormond Beach and go to the mission field. But But I think what we have to wrestle with is God, am I serving, have you called me here? Am I serving here? Do I even have a heart that would give up what what you've given me here to follow you? I think that's where he wants us to be. And we love looking at this passage because it reminds us of a man who's watched his father die. He's watched his brother die. He now has, now he's raising his nephew. He's got a wife that can't have children because now that's a major problem in that society Because that means God's hands against you and your seed will die right there. It's a very difficult little chapter, verse 30 of chapter 11. That's a very difficult passage. And yet God's saying, hey, I got a plan for you. I got a plan for you. Notice in verse 2 we start to see the covenant of a new nation. I will make you a great nation. Uh, God um, got a little problem. Uh, Mrs. Abraham uh, can't conceive. I mean, you know, it's not, we're human, right? We think through these things, don't we? I'm going to make you a great nation. It's been clarified in the list of nations and people here, the chapters previous, that she can't have children, but God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and, and so you shall be a blessing. And then it says a little further on, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And so here comes this promise as Abraham says, man, you're calling me to this land. I'm going to leave everything. This is a, in, in, in the course of the narrative, we don't quite understand everything, but this is a new God. All the pagan gods that his father, Terah, worshipped, they're all dead idols uh, of wood and rock. Um, this is a new God. He's following a living God. He's following a God that you can't touch and feel and bow down in front of and burn stuff in front of. He, you can't see it. He's following a new and living God. And this new and living God says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And he goes, well, there's uh, me and there's Sarai. <laughs> How great can that be? <laughs> But this is what God does. He, he's, so, he's, he, he's not limited like we are. We have, such, we have such short fallings in our views, don't we? And we see about right here. We just can't see very far. God says you will be great. Look how, um, 
Stevens talks about this in Acts chapter 7. This is a fascinating little text. Go, go to Acts 7 with me. They knew this history, man. And I, I think they killed Stephen because he spoke such clear truth. He knew their history probably better than they did. And then he tied it all back to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then that was it. <laughs> they were going to get rid of him right there. But this is part of the history. He knew this covenant nation was that God gave this nation that wasn't theirs. This religious group had taken over. They'd taken ownership of the nation. They, they had rejected the living God, that he had sent them a Messiah, and it was their nation, not God's nation any longer. And so here Stephen wants to remind them of it. The high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen starts this great defense, and we don't have time to read it all, but just look at the first few verses here, verse 2. And he said, hear me, brethren and fathers. He's speaking brethren as fellow Israelites here, not, not as saved individuals here. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Now stop right there. So we get a little further explanation here. He said, well, how did Abraham know when to do this? The God of glory appeared to him. And he has a habit of doing this, doesn't he? Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt. <laughs> appears to him in a burning bush. And so Stephen here gives us a little further insight. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. So that takes you back even when they were moving there, God had already done this, and yet he was moving that family. Even before the death of Terah, God was moving them. Even though uh, Terah did not believe in God, Abraham did, and God was moving that family, even though they were, not, they were probably pagans. Isn't that fascinating? Verse 3, and he said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into a land that I will show you. And then they left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Iran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to, the, to this country in which you are now living. He's given their history. God had him move here. This is God's nation, not yours. And then he gives them, and as we look at the end of verse 3, the promise of an international Messiah. <laughs> I was just thinking of that this week. I think he's an international Messiah. Look at the, look at the phrase in end of verse 3. So he says, I will bless those who bless you. We'll see that as we go through this. Um, just even in the end of this passage, <laughs> uh, people realize that the hand of God was with Abraham. And those who curse you, I will curse. And we'll, we'll see that as we take an overview of, of, of the nation as we work towards the cross. But then the last phrase there in verse 3, and in you, it's an interesting term here, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. In you. In you. This is very missional. This is thinking wider than the nation that's not even a nation, right? I mean, it's kind of comical a little bit. He goes, you know, in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. You're going to be this great nation. He goes, well, two, we're two. <laughs> you know? And, and yet all the nations are going to be blessed. And remember, this isn't too far from Babel, and where the nations are just now finding each other and their languages and their cultures and developing this. And God says, you'll be blessed. Some people say, well, Scott, is that such a gospel verse? I mean, you know, this, is this really about the Messiah? Or are you reading something into that? Well, look at Galatians 3 with me. <laughs> because this sets the record straight of how powerful this passage is. Look at Galatians 3, um, verse 8, I believe. 
Verse 7, therefore, be sure that it is those who are the faith are of the faith who are of the sons of Abraham. Look, he's saying, he's really deter- tr- laying down, you came by faith, not by works. That's what the whole battle of the doctrine of justification is centered in the book of Galatians here. And he's, again, using Abraham as that one who was reckoned to be righteous, verse 6. And he's referring back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which we'll see shortly. But notice verse 8. Now look at this. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. That's why this is a gospel verse. Because he is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ coming through. This is the Messiah. And so here the scriptures say, God's word said, the gospel was preached in that statement. Abraham, you're going to leave that land. You're going to go to a land that I show you and from you is going to come a great nation and through you is going to come one that will bless all peoples. And you're right there, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, you and I are brought in to the plan of God. Physically on the page. He already had us laid down from the foundations of the world, but here he brings us into it. What an amazing thing. I mean, Jesus, I mean, God could have said, Abraham, you know, you're going to be the Jews. Well, what are the Jews? Well, it's you and Sarah right now. <laughs> but it's not, I'm not staying there. This thing is going to go beyond you. And so uh, I love that tax. And this is missions. You can preach missions out of this, realizing that this is the promise that God gave way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that he promises to be a blessing to all peoples. And you and I are from all walks of life, aren't we, in here? God has drawn us to himself. And so we find this theme just working its way through Scripture. As Isaiah 49, 6, he said, It's too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also, speaking of Jesus, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus' ascension, the great commission, Matthew 28, 29, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Acts 1, verse 8, just as he's leaving, um, he is reminded, the disciples are reminded by the angels, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. See, it started back here, all the way flooding forward that the gospel was not going to be contained to them. And, and that's why we get into places like Acts chapter 13, and here the Spirit of God has fallen on Gentiles, and they're coming back reporting to the elders, and everybody's amazed that the Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit, and they say, it must pleasure God, it must be God's will that he open this up and bring Gentiles in, and the, and the Gentiles start to rejoice. And somebody probably, hopefully, opened the Old Testament and said, hey, didn't he say that in chapter 12, verse 3 of Genesis? Isn't that beautiful? And every time we have a missionary here, and by the way, I have Ton from Spain going to be with us here Sunday. He's going to speak for a little bit, and I'm going to speak. Um, um, and, and Ton's going to share what's going on in that ministry in Spain. And you're going to hear about people coming to faith, and that's part of the promise of Genesis 12, 3. People from all walks of life, every tribe, tongue, and nation, God promised back before there was a nation that he would bring people to himself. 
D, the obedience of Abraham, back in chapter 12, verse 4. Watch what he does. Um, Man, he has great faith here. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. God said it, he did it. Lot went with him. So he's caring for his his nephew. He's not just a little kid probably by now. Um, Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired from Haran, and they set out of the land of Can- uh, uh, for the land of Canaan, and thus they came to the land of Canaan. So he comes in this land <laughs> that, man, it's going to be a long time before we actually, actually get to really, well, we see where Joshua was, right? A lot of things are going to happen. They're going to be captive in Egypt for a long time. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, to the oaks of Moray, and now the Canaan was there in the land. The Canaanites were already there. Isn't that interesting? So that separation at Babel had taken place, the very pagan group of people, and it's interesting that Moses records this in Genesis with a nation about to go in and take the Canaanites. He says they were already there. God had promised this land to Abram and Sarai, and now the Canaanites are there. So remember, he's, he's, Genesis is about strengthening them of the great authority and sovereignty of God as they go in to take this nation from these very pagan people. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. He worshipped him. And then they proceeded from there to the mountain to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel from the west and Ai on its east. And there built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So he's, he's moving through the, the land that the Lord is going to give him, worshiping him as he goes. And Abraham journeyed on, continuing, continuing towards Negev. And so here's Abraham obeying the Lord, and then there's the reaffirming of this covenant. He goes and almost marks out the land in a sense as he travels through it. Now, last little section here <laughs> is where we see great faith and a lapse of faith. And here we see two examples of faith and, and the protection of God. Now, again, this is a narrative. We don't know the whole story, but there's enough here to understand and find encouragement from him and see the greatness of God and see lack of faith and see strong faith. Verse 10, look at Abram's lack of faith. Now, Ab- now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt. Nothing really good happens most of the time when you go down to Egypt uh, to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he had come to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. Well, hey, there's a good check mark there, you know, told his wife he's beautiful. Seems to be going very well here, honey. You look beautiful today. I'll keep reading. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me. (laughs) They will let you live. Please say that you are my sister. And there's a relation in there in this family that is uh, maybe a, uh, uh, a stretch here. So that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Now, God's made all these promises to him. You're going to be a great nation. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse and wipe out those who who curse you. I'm going to bring the gospel, the Messiah, through you. And now you're afraid because your wife's beautiful. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? And it came, verse 14, about when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. He was right. 
Pharaoh's official said, saw her and praised her to the Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen, donkeys and male and female servants and, uh, and female donkeys and camels. So far going pretty good. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Can you imagine? Can you imagine uh, Sarai here? Um, certainly women were often looked at as a second class of citizens, but this was a very difficult time. And, and we don't want to read more into this, but it seems as though there is a lack of faith that God would protect him. And he, God, ha, God had given this promise through your seed, Abraham. And remember, in this verse, he's saying, they're going to look on you and kill me. God had said, through your seed is going to come a blessing to all peoples. And so there was a lack of trust in this covenant, a lack of trust in this promise. But then we see Sarah's great faith. And I love this verse right here. Verse 17, but the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plague. Now look at this, because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. Now, the verse doesn't give us a whole lot of understanding here of what, how Sarah was handling herself in this. Could you imagine this, ladies? Um, honey sold me down the river um, in the harem now <laughs> at Pharaoh's palace. And Pharaoh thinks I'm beautiful. This is trouble. This is big trouble. And there's supposed to be a seed coming through Sarah by Abraham that is going to be the Messiah to the world. And now I'm in a harem in Egypt. <laughs> and God strikes Pharaoh for this. You say, well, how do you know her faith? Well, look at 1 Peter chapter 3. And I think a lot of times, brothers and sisters, we think of Sarah, and we're going to see it, where she does have times of lapse of faith like we all do. And we think of her laughing when, G when probably the pre-incarnate Christ, I almost said it, Jesus, comes and says, you're going to have a son, and a year from now you're going to have a son. She's going to hear her in the tent laughing. She also, before that, buys into, well, looks like we're not going to have kids, so take Hagar. That really turned out well. We're still dealing with that. Uh, um, we think of her that way, don't we? But the New Testament never reaccounts that sinful behavior of Sarah's. Do you realize that? Isn't that like our God to forgive us of our sins and not reaccount them? Look how God talks about Sarah in chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way you wisely submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now put that in the context of Sarah. <laughs> okay, honey. I really don't think this is a great idea. <laughs> um, but I will obey you. Uh, now, in no way, in any way, am I telling uh, women to submit to sinful things that are outside of the Scriptures. But God is using this. He says, as, as they observe their chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding of hair, wearing of gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable quality of a gentle, quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. That phrase is never used of men. It's used of women. It's an amazing statement God makes 
of godly women. Verse 5, here's what we're after. For in this way, in the former times, the holy women, all, holy women also, who hoped in God. It's a great little phrase. Their hope was in God, not even in their husbands in this case, right? Their hope was in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husband, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by fear. This is a great text for women to study who struggle with fear. Because the, the way to overcome fear is your hope is in God. And the example was Sarah. And God's word is remembering the times, not just once, but twice Abram does this to her. And God looks upon her faith, protects her because she's in that plan. She's in that plan laid down from the foundations of the world that there's a Messiah coming through her womb and down through the line going to be on this earth. And God protects her. In fact, it's startling what God does. Look with me, and we'll close with this. Look back at the end of this text, what God does. So it's verse 17, Yahweh strikes Pharaoh. <laughs> the great plague. And he ain't seen nothing yet. The plagues are coming. <laughs> His great-grandfather or whoever, great-great, is going to see some stuff that's going to Spend his head, ten of them to be exact. But he's struck with a plague here. And then verse 18, Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Somehow he puts this together that this woman Sarai is not his sister but his wife. And he comes and What have you done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that so that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. <laughs> Do you see God protecting the Messiah in this? She could have died. She could have gained diseases. Uh, I mean, Abraham could have been killed. Uh, I mean, all kinds of scenarios could have happened in here. And yet, God doesn't let man thwart his plan. And he rescues this dear woman out of a, a terrible, probably, scene. The palace is in disarray. They're struck with some kind of plague. They're putting it all together that, hey, wait a minute, God, the living God, they somehow understand all of this. The narrative doesn't explain it at all. But then they realize that this is not right. And in the end, here's what this great, merciful, great God does. In verse 20, Pharaoh commanded his men concerning them and escorted them away, him and his wife and all of their belongings. And so he, he sells his wife down the river, gets a bunch of camels and, and slaves, and, and gets escorted out of town with his wife back. All with the protection of the Lord Jesus Christ in his seed. And this is what's so fun to talk about biblical theology as we work our way through the scriptures. And we know that David is not going to die at the hands of Goliath because the seed of Christ is in him. We know, we know that, that other great stories as we watch them go down, whether it's the harlot of Jericho or whoever it is, are not going to perish because God is bringing his son through that line. Because he's going to save the nations. 
He's going to rescue people from their sins. He's going to give us eternal life. And he's going to bring us from Ormond Beach and from California and from Spain and from all over. And he's going to gather us to his throne. And we're going to worship him for eternity because he's going to protect them in Genesis 12. Read your Bible that way. Read your Bible with a view of what Christ is doing, what God is doing, how he's protecting and bringing people to himself. It's a beautiful thing. Get you so encouraged. Man, don't sell your wife down the river. <laughs> Doesn't work out very good. Love them, cherish them. They're precious to God, they should be precious to you. And find the plan of God. What does God have for your life? He has something for you. He wants to magnify himself in you. What is it? Ask the Lord tonight as you lay down your head. Am I magnifying you? Maybe you're going through something very difficult or you just can't see yourself. Ask. Show me. Take God, will you show me what you have for me? How am I going to bring you glory? He will. He doesn't hide his will. This isn't a nut and shell game like, well, I hope you guess the right one. He has a job for you, for all of us. Father, thank you for the reminder of your love for your people. Thank you that you save people out of pagan homes. That you gather people who have no history or heritage, Lord, and you claim them for yourself. Thank you that you do raise people in godly homes, Christians. We thank you that you take all of these people and you call them all of your sons and daughters and you adopt them and you bring them into your family and you, you dress them in the righteousness of your son and you make them as though they've eternally been yours. This is an amazing thing, God. And yet we have mu not much to offer. We, we get given these great promises and great covenants and yet we become afraid and we do stupid things. And yet there you are, Lord, holding us, walking us through, helping us find the center of your will, Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you that you're a good and gracious God and you act the way you do. And we thank you you don't act like us. And so thank you, Lord. We praise you in hard times and good times, knowing that your will is always right. So, Lord, we bless you, Lord. May you continue to encourage our hearts here at Riverbend. May we be a people who follows you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.